Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I'm joined today by a very good friend and an extremely interesting traveler, Melanie. Now, Melanie works in the cybersecurity field, but she also has worked for decades in philanthropic efforts for not only her own not-for-profits, but also for other commercial organizations. Now, Melanie is extremely experienced as a solo traveler. She's done a lot of overland travel as well, but she provides some really important insights into how we as travelers can give back during our journeys. Melanie also provides some practical advice around solo travel, some of the things that she has learned and used throughout her trips. So please enjoy my conversation with Melanie. Melanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We have known each other a very long time, and I have so much respect for you, not only as a traveler, but as a professional, as a cybersecurity expert, um, and also as a philanthropist. You have spent a lot of your life giving back to others, and we're going to talk a little bit about each one of those things today. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Fun. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. And um, it was amazing to think about my life in this whole scope. So thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> and I, I remember the very first time that we met, it was in Sedona, and I was taking delivery of a mountain bike, of all things. <laughs> and the highlight of the day ended up being my interaction with you, not the mountain bike. So, And it was a very cool mountain bike. But just to be able to connect with someone that has now become a lifelong friend mm. and someone that I have so much respect for, it's just really great to get a chance to sit down and have this conversation together. And you've traveled a lot, both professionally and personally, and a lot of those travels have been solo. And you've done a really good job of doing trips that are better planned than others and some trips that are quite serendipitous as well. So we're going to go through all of that in, in the conversation today. But what I really wanted to start with was what fired that passion for travel for you? What, what was your first memories of travel or the thing that maybe hooked you in the beginning? So I was that kid growing up in Hudson, New Hampshire, who started to read every book in the local public library. And that's where travel really started as a little fire. Um, fortunately, the librarians there let me take out more than the allowed amount of books. <laughs> and my dad would cart me there every, every other week, and he would get some books for himself, and then I would have this massive stack of you know, 11, 12 books. And I just read. Um, and I think that's where it all started, just this kind of idea that there was so much in the world to mm. see, to be a part of, to understand, to learn, um, and to learn myself, to be there sure. in those places and see what what I saw. Is there, a, is there a couple books that come to mind from that time in your life that really stood out? Oh, I read all the uh, Four Doors travel books yeah, from different sure. countries. Um and, and people, funny don't, enough, people don't really use those that much anymore. No, but someone had bad. gifted them, I think, to that library. And um, first one I read was on the UK, because I loved castles. And then 
I remember the one on India, which is really actually interesting because that is one of the one countries I haven't been to. I've been to Sri Lanka, but not to India yet. And you've so. been to Nepal too, so you've yes, been very and close. Yes, Nepal, yes. Yeah. And I actually was 15 miles near the border and I really thought about it, but I didn't think that was authentic enough to just cross the border. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have a three-hour program, so like I have to spend three hours at least in a place. Okay, that's an interesting one. I've heard that. I heard it a couple different ways. I've heard, you know, that just crossing the border qualifies. I've never heard someone really make a, a decent argument for being in a layover in an airport. No. I don't think that that's ever really qualified in my mind. I mean, I guess technically you've you've landed, but you haven't even touched the earth yet. I mean, you're still like on concrete and steel and tile and everything else like that. I have to be out. I have to be out of an airport and actually experience something locally. I like the three hour rule. That makes sense. A lot of people also say, you know, an overnight also, but then there's countries like Liechtenstein, which is (laughs) like, like you would have to like, (laughs) it would have to be like a stunt almost to have to spend the night there because, you know, with Schengen now, you just... You go have, I, I remember having a great dinner in Liechtenstein, but there was not a reason for me to like make that be my stop for the evening. No, no, no. And, and usually when you're there, you're going somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> so. so true. Well, it's just so small. It's yeah. so tiny, you know, in, or, or what's the one in, um, well, or the Vatican city, you wouldn't be able to spend the night at, Right. I don't think. I don't believe that there's any accommodation there. So that's a, and that's a considered a country. And there's some other ones in Italy that are so small. Yeah. That, the autonomous provinces. Yes. They're just very yes. tiny little countries. Yes. Right on the border. There's so many amazing places kind of established out of world war II that are fun to go to lots of castle ruins all along. There yeah. Too. No, you're right. Because world war II was actually when most of Italy, as we know it today was formed. Yeah. Cause they they were quite autonomous provinces before the war. <laughs> I mean, they were considered Italians, but like Tyrol where they're speaking you know, German. And mm. Yeah. That's a fun, that's a fun experience and gorgeous mountains. There. So Fodor's books was yes. something that you were reading as a kid. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's pretty, imp- that's pretty impressive. See where I could possibly go. <laughs> I think I was lucky to get through a mad magazine as a, as a, as a 10 year old or whatever. And you're reading, you're reading Fodor's. I just so. went nuts. I just read everything I could get my hands on. And, um, Every genre, too, which was really surprising for a kid. But I was um, partially deaf when I was a child. And so since I had lost my hearing, my whole world expanded when I was actually reading. Oh, sure. It brought in that sense of it. Oh, that's amazing. And and about how old were you when your hearing came back? Fourth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit older. Yeah, that would certainly be an experience as a child trying to come to terms with that or, or had you lost your hearing young enough that you really didn't know what was missing? Yeah. So second grade to fourth grade. So two years, Mm -hmm. um, while each, uh, eardrum kind of, they, they regenerate like starfish. Wow. They can, if a, a certain portion is there. Um, so you can regrow them. And I, and I was able to, but that two years was made a significant impression because I mm. had to learn a little bit of sign language and yeah. I was reading and my math scores went way behind because math is generally verbal for kids. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of instruction in that regard. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting stuff. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> but but all part of what makes us who we are is those experiences. I, yeah, because yeah. one, I started reading and the world expanded for me in a different way. And two, I started to watch people 
in a different way that mm. benefited me later in life, especially cross-cultural connections. Those nonverbal cues, yes. which is so much a part of language. And it's also why, like surprisingly, we can pick up languages when we're in the context and with the person physically. Because we, as humans, we are quite adept at nonverbal communication and no question throughout time, we've had to interact with people that we didn't have the same native tongue. So I would think that those humans that survived to at least a couple generations ago um, would have would have at least developed some ability to be able to interact by not speaking the native tongue. Right. All the trade. Yeah. You think about all of that. Yeah, no question. And um, what was the first international trip that you went on? <laughs> this is really kind of interesting. I had to think about that. Um, previously at it's it's been I've been on so many trips all around uh the world the very first trip that I went on was to Europe and um it's interesting when my grandmother passed away she left my brother and I each six thousand dollars to travel and I was a sophomore in college and I had to think about where I wanted to go first and I couldn't decide mm. wanted to go on a a whole journey. And so my brother said he was game to come with me. I rented a car in England <laughs> to drive. You wanted to go <laughs> had, see those castles. Had no idea <laughs> that it was going to be on that I was going to be on the other side of the car. Yes. Driving sure. and on the other side of the road driving. Um I still remember getting to Dover and then taking the ferry to France from Calais and thinking oh my God, I'm really doing this. Yeah. I'm really going to go and see these places. Um, and you did travel with your brother, is that right? Yeah, my oh, very amazing. first trip was with my, my younger brother, Eric. Amazing. And um, that really you know, kicked some things off. And so there we were, you know, driving through France in, an, in a British car. <laughs> so, sure, um, now you're back on the other side of the road. Yeah. But still on my, the wrong side of the car. Right, wrong side <laughs> of the car. And we, uh, we hit the, the highway going into... Um, into Paris. I didn't know how to get off the ring road there around Paris. We went straight through um, <laughs> and around the Arc de Triomphe, like at the same day that was uh, Francois Mitterrand's funeral procession. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was, that was exciting. And then we, I just pulled the car over and hopped out. My brother did too. We had to breathe and we just looked at the, the Seine and just kind of like, was like we made it alive. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I drove down to Barcelona. So that was my very first road trip even of uh, just exploring and just seeing what there was to see. So we went that down is a to the proper, region. That is a proper first road trip. <laughs> it was. It was. But I think that's, that's been a marker of your life is that, you know, even though you, you understand risk because it's actually what you do professionally, but you're, you're, you're willing to take those risks oftentimes to have the experiences that you want. So true. It's really interesting because when I travel, and, and maybe this is short-sighted, um, but it also has benefited me, I haven't worried so much about the risks when I, when I launch and go. But in the moment, I'm comfortable kind of looking at, kind of evaluating the level of, of risk and opportunity. Sure. Um, and being a, a um, very rose-colored glasses person, I tend to look at more of the opportunities than the challenges. And... I'm so curious that it just drives me to see the next place, the next thing. At the same time, I've been in enough situations globally where 
I've had to be much more aware of my surroundings and plan a little bit more than I originally started to. Well, you've, <laughs> you've really traveled in the developing world oftentimes, and you've done so in, in multiple capacities, including working with the UN. So you've been right. in areas that at the time would have been, we would call them like a hot zone yes. where there is a, a heightened risk profile and you're being a little bit more mindful. What are some, what are some pieces of advice that you can give to the listener that you've learned uh, traveling in so many different unique places of the world? Oh, there's so many, so many, so many things. Um, first and foremost, do not hit the elevator button first. When you get into an elevator as a female solo traveler, wait, fiddle, do something, let someone else hit the elevator button. Um, button, the floor button. And then um, if someone gets in with you, and uh, that's one thing. And I always, when I go into a hotel, I block the door with my luggage and then check first um, the shower curtain. If the shower curtain's closed, I don't go into the room. Yeah. Um, so there's those types of things. But on, and that's kind of tactical, but on a deeper level. Or behind the blinds. <laughs> behind the blinds. Yeah, oh, behind the. I have one ridiculous story. I think it was, I was in Johannesburg. Well, that's why I remembered it. Yeah, <laughs> I remembered it. <laughs> there was that time that I threw one of my shoes at the uh, curtain around a window uh, to see if there was a person behind the curtain. And there was, and they did move, but then I had to run with one shoe <laughs> and the other one was healed. So that wasn't the best, you know, the best choice. So I took it off in the hallway and ran, you know, without shoes. But, um, but you know, those types of things you learn over time. So there's yeah. that hotel room safety, there's the hotel safety in general, and there's the things that you start to become more aware of when, um, like when you get out of the elevator, go last. Um, yeah. and, um, because there are different experiences I've had where they weren't, they weren't positive. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's, that's one level. And then there's also the level of when you get into a country and there's some unrest or some geopolitical challenges that have not actually been publicized, but you arrive at that place and you're seeing that something's going on. This happened to me once, I think like four or five years ago, I flew into San Pedro Sula because I wanted to go up to Copan Ruinas and... Uh, Honduras and I flew in and it wasn't in the news but the airport was being shut down and there, the people were um, protesting and had shut down all the roads around the airport and this is when I had to kind of lean on some background experiences in sub-Saharan Africa and um, all, or, all around uh, to think about okay what in a situation where a country's shutting down mm. You know, what, what do you do and where do you go? Where is safety? You know, how safe are you as a, as a traveler, as a tourist? You know, what, what elements of um, your identity do you need to pull in in those situations yeah. uh, uh, for protection or for protection for others or advocacy for others? And you have to start thinking in that situation what you need to do. For me in that situation, I had rented a car at the airport and all the cars actually had been taken. So the man at the rental car location said that I could rent his car from him. <laughs> and so I did. And we worked out a plan. And um, that night, I spent about three hours trying to 
leave the city or find a safe place to stay overnight where the car was protected and I was protected. Because you were trying to get to Copan ruins. Yeah. yeah. So I had a, a good, you know, few hour drive that was going to be north. Yeah, sure. But could not leave. And there were fires across the, um, you know, trees down, fires, uh, trash fires on the roadways all around. Um, and so one of the things that I've learned from traveling is that you watch the women and children and you see where they go and you talk to them to find out where the safe places are. Um, I speak some level of, you know, beginner Spanish, like where I can go to the market or the bathroom, but I had enough, I I could speak enough where I stopped and asked some people, uh, what they, you know, what, what they thought, where were they going? Uh, asked if I could follow them and then people naturally will help you yeah. when they see who you are. And they'll also gesture. And, you know, one woman explained, keep your windows down. Do not use your camera. Do not use your phone. Yeah. Show people that you're American. You know, make, yeah. make sure people can see you. Um, and then I followed uh, one woman and her son on bikes through a sugarcane field. <laughs> and she took me to her cousin's house where we I slept in a... Um, in a garage overnight. <laughs> you made you made you made it work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you absolutely made it work. Yeah, and that is quite common in Latin America for protests. They've learned that having their protests surround some shutting down of commerce or transportation right. gets them a little bit more attention. So those that are going to be traveling through the Americas just know that that is a very likely scenario, and. In most cases, you're better off turning around and returning to where you came from for a day or two and then continuing on in your, on your journey. It's very rare that those protests continue for more than a couple days. Um, but, I mean, it certainly can, but it's very rare that that happens. I remember we were trying to get out of Ushuaia in Argentina, and they were protesting in this roundabout. But they, they like, only had the travel, tra- you know, the traffic blocked out of town. So... What we did in the Land Cruisers, we made a left like we were going to go back into town, but then we backed up the other <laughs> side of the road and like steadily waved and smiled. <laughs> and and like in the poorest Spanish that I could muster, because I have pretty good traveler Spanish, I'm like, muchas gracias. <laughs> you, know, you know, as I just like awesome. dro- dro- drove backwards up the in- inbound lane into town uh, to get out. So we, I think we surprised them enough that uh, we pulled it off, but you can't always do that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a little bit of credibility when you're traveling as, you know, being from somewhere else. So you're not part of whatever is happening locally Mm -hmm. and people get a chance to kind of explain their stories to you. Listen to them. Yes. And you really need to hear those stories because there's nuggets in there that help teach you about that place, the history, the culture much more than just what you're seeing. And you have to have yeah. these conversations in some way, even when they're not in the same language. So it's good to, it's good to learn you know, what people are experiencing and then you start to think of ways that you can help yeah. as well. And give them that opportunity to be heard. Yes. Because that's really why they're doing it. They're protesting because they don't feel heard, they don't feel seen in whatever plight that they're facing. And a lot of these countries are really challenged, I mean, especially in a country like Argentina right. or Honduras, for example. Right. They're really challenged uh, countries, and they have this um, 
isolation of wealth. Um, so a lot of people are, are quite dispassionate about it. Yeah, so. balance of resources and the you know political justice or lack thereof can yeah. be um, you know generational. And so there's there's so much to learn, and you can't always ignore those things. You know, as a traveler, when you're just going to see places, you actually have to be a part of it and find out. At least I do. I, that's part of what I love about travel is meeting the people, finding out the stories. It's firsthand. It's primary source information. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, in high school, I wanted to be a journalist or thought I wanted to be a journalist. And I went very far from that in different ways. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that kind of interest in humanitarianism or human rights is brings you to places and you see what's happening in the human condition of that of that place and you have an opportunity to be a part of a change for the good or to just support with knowledge or you know there's so many so many different opportunities and it doesn't feel like that sometimes when you're traveling because you don't always know what it is that you can be a part of or if you should even get involved but sometimes you really should well and you've learned a lot around that and that was one of the the points of conversation that I really wanted to have today, because there are some things that you've really helped me understand a little more thoroughly. We had a conversation about some, some ways that I wanted to give back during this trip across Africa. And, you know, I felt like it was important to be as supportive as possible to, um, the mothers and to the women of Africa, because, uh, I've seen a lot of that on the ground. And you reminded me that there is some downside to that and that there's a lot, most people that give to Africa in some way have a similar mindset and that results in a, in a kind of a imbalance of, of providing opportunity and education, uh, safety and security for young males as well. So that was really important for me to hear that. And so it came, I came from this place of what was clear to me after the fact of extreme ignorance that I wanted to do something beneficial. And I felt like in my trips to Africa that these women are so incredible and they work so hard for their family and uh, they work harder on their easiest day than I will ever work on my hardest day. Uh, But it's important for us to not forget that there's a whole other segment of the population that if they continue to be disenfranchised or even amplified in that disenfranchised nature because of we're only giving to one segment of the population, that can result in even more tension. Right. So that was really helpful. Yeah, there's so many, um, so many aspects of that. You know, the UN identified years ago that when you gave a woman opportunity, she shared it with her community, shared the information, shared the resources, and spread or scaled the what was provided. Right, um, and that was what I heard. Yes, <laughs> and and um, you know, at the same level, disenfranchised is disenfranchised, and the people across the many countries of Africa are incredibly entrepreneurial and have see see things that some of us who don't live there they see things that we can't possibly see and opportunities that we can't possibly grasp mm. and it's 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 important to give them the opportunity to create something instead of us 
telling them what can be created because they have many, many ideas uh, to start and to to grow things, especially through technology, which is amazing. Years ago, I was at a, a World Economic Forum event and I met a man from Nigeria who had started a a beekeeping business and <laughs> on his card it it specified his address which was like three lines it was like <sighs> across from the mobile station sure. the place with the the windows with that had the blue curtains and it was you know it was like a description more than it was a, an actual address and he handed me the card and he saw better me better not ever it. change your curtains huh? <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> blue curtains forever <laughs> but um he he, you know, he had that, but what he had was an email address and he had a phone number and that gave him a presence in the world. And then what that man did was he took his opportunity and his knowledge of bees and started to spread that to a larger, wider group of people, created bee kits where people could use the, these kits to keep away rogue male elephants in their gardens, uh, where they would previously hurt the elephants from coming through. Um, so he created fascinating opportunity just simply from connecting with people. He was able to later sell to whole foods, the, the, and created a whole system of regulation and cost structure for honey around sub-Saharan Africa. And so, you know, and he gave back to many, many, many people because he sold the bee kits at a price where it was just the cost of his transportation to get to different communities. And then he involved those people in the trade and had a list of all the people who were participating, got them email addresses, taught them how to connect to others. So sometimes what people need isn't necessarily funds or money or our ideas as travelers. They need what you said earlier, an ear, a listening ear, so that they can actually talk about some of the ideas and solutions that they have that are so different in some cases that we could, that some travelers just can't imagine. Mm. And so we can always benefit from sitting back and hearing someone's story and what their ideas are and how to help them make those things real. If I understand what you're saying correctly, it's, it's, it's really about not coming in with, here I have a solution to provide you with clean drinking water. Yes. Um, sitting down and asking them, what do they see as the best way to have clean drinking water? And they may, like one of the things that I experienced when I was in Malawi was I was talking with a gentleman there and he talked, we were walking through his village and he was showing me all of the water systems that were, that no longer work. (laughs) And the ones that are still in use, I believe they were put in by the Norwegians and they were all mechanical, huge, robust stainless steel with a concrete bollard and this, these huge (laughs) mechanisms and joints to, to be durable. And they, he's like, they have never stopped working. All the other stuff that either is trying to pull moisture out of the air, that one stopped working or, and I'm sure that those technologies are awesome, but they're difficult to sustain for the long term. So, yeah. And it's important to find out, you know, sometimes It's important to know from people, too, where some of these things should be. Um, So you see a lot of water systems placed at schools um, and and near community centers. And so it's about where they can be protected, where they can survive, where they can benefit others for... And not have pilfering or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Or that you enable 
girls or young women to actually be able to, you know, if that, if that was their, their position and their role to, to provide water for their family during the day, that it gave them an opportunity to go to school and also bring back water for their, for their community. Yeah. And so you, know, you have to hear to help you have to listen and you can't go with solutions already in mind yeah, because um, you'll miss the real challenges. That was, that was so helpful for me. And, and when I was able to, to go on that tour in Nairobi that you helped arrange, I spent a lot of time just asking questions as mm. opposed to offering solutions that I saw in my mind, like, Oh, this makes sense. And after enough questions, you, and listening, then you actually get to hear what the problem is, which is the kids were having one day a week, they lost their opportunity for education because an entire class had to go and fetch water for the entire school. So one out of five days was spent with this entire class of kids needing to move about a kilometer back and forth between the source of clean drinking water that then provided water for the rest of the school. And of course the next day, then there's another class that was doing it. So, but as a result of that, they, they lost 20% of their educational opportunity because they were trying to get clean drinking water. So, and then just listening to how they suggested that the solution be brought about, it was the most belt and suspenders. Like we're going to, we would want to have a pipe that goes here <laughs> and it's going to go into these three or four, you know, 9,000 liter, um, you know, cans or, a, you know, big, big canisters. And then it's just going to be gravity fed into the kids, um, you know, bottles or whatever they're using uh, for cleaning dishes as well. And it was so interesting to listen to this suggestion of a solution and in the background was this huge, no doubt, extremely expensive system that was supposed to pull water out of the air that no longer worked. Uh. Um, so uh, you know, again, these technologies are very important and there's no doubt that at some point in the future those systems will work. But you know, the space was taken, this very expensive piece of equipment, and you could have bought, for the rest of the schools in that region, you could have bought them tanks and pipes for what it would have cost for that one, oh yeah, that one system. It's a, it's really amazing that you know people around the world are brilliant and they know what they need to solve a problem. Mm. Sometimes they just need a bridge, yeah. and they and whenever we as travelers can be that bridge through our skills, our knowledge, our connections, our network, um, it's it's important to not just be in a place but to become part of a place. Yeah. Um, and in, you know, certainly in Kenya, like you're talking about for, for Nairobi, people have seen different technologies come and go. They're yes. a test bed for so many things from pharmaceuticals to, to technology and, um, hydraulics. So it's, uh, it's, it's similar around the world in remote rural communities where people are looking for, new and dramatic opportunities, but have just not possibly met the right folks or have, sure. you know, received grants, but they know why it doesn't work. And that feedback doesn't always get back to the people who have dropped off the, the supposed solutions. And so yeah. they, um, they need that space to share, you know, what's going on so that they can, 
they can make a difference in their own communities and lead that change in their own communities in partnership with others. How, how would you recommend, so I'm going to give you a scenario that a typical overlander would be experiencing, which is okay. doing something like I'm doing, crossing Africa. And I learned so much and I gained so much incredible experience from each one of those countries and each one of those interactions that I have. Uh, so I'm getting the, the very best part of that deal. <laughs> but I, I want to give back. And I know that a lot of overlanders do want to give back in some way wh while they're traveling. What would be in your mind the top one, two, three ways mm. that you think overlanders can give back while they're traveling? Oh, let's see. Well, first and foremost, when you are traveling, everything that you can give to that, the local communities that you go through. So, you know, eat at the local restaurants, stay at homestays or, you know, people's homes or farms or, um, help the money that you're spending on your travels go into that local community in some way. It's great advice. So that it, you know, that's, that's just one way we can all do something to help. If we, and if we only, uh, travel and stay at corporate or enterprise level places, we one, don't see the rich history and cultures or foods of the place or learn what's important, see the birthday parties, go to, um, you know, the, the local fishing pond or, you know, you meet people through these experiences and they take you to do the things that are, that matter to them hmm. and they share with you what they love. Um, so when you show an interest in that local community, they'll show an interest generally in you and if they see that you're helping to support the local community and you're you've going you know going to that local fish place, um, they're they're thankful and they're to tend. In my experience you know, with what I don't know, 72 countries thus far, I think that that's um, that's a way to get involved and see things that you would never see if you went to you know the places that would be standard or all inclusive or, and there's certainly risks and dangers that can be associated with that because, um, you know, as, as travelers, we're often seen as, um, you know, people who have discretionary income or a target for, for other things. But surprisingly with all the places that I've been, the only place that I've been mugged is in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think a lot of that is because when people see that you are invested in them and they're asking the questions and you're, uh, trying to make an effort to participate in that local economy, then they treat that with a level of respect too. It seems like it. And, and I would wonder, I don't know if anybody's ever really studied this properly, but I wonder if there's any actual increase in safety or security between staying in a Hilton or staying in a, in a local stay. I would think that the local stay was actually safer <laughs> Because you have the advantage of local knowledge and they're vested in your yes. safe experience. Yes. Um, because they know that that will result in, you know, a positive, you know, communication from you to others. I've been absolutely shocked at how much care I have been shown um, in my travels when I stay at those places. Like, I mean, even just, you know, I remember I was, I was somewhere in Tanzania and I was getting up really early to leave the next morning. And the lot attendant had just not gone home because he was going to make sure that this fancy car wasn't going to get 
anything happened to it on his watch. And I, I was absolutely shocked to see them out there, him out there the next morning. And it, it lit, literally almost brought me to tears because yeah. um, he had not gone home to his family to make sure. And then, um, and, and maybe this was the wrong action on my part, but I, I offered to give him some money to thank him for staying overnight. And he was, and he just was like, he waved his hands like, no, <laughs> like he did it for himself, for his own pride and honor yes. of like on his watch, this car is not going to get touched. And that was really hum- incredibly humbling for me. Like, and I could see it in his eyes. Like he, he was looking at me like just as a fellow human being of like, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to show you that we cared about you and your vehicle uh, and you don't need to pay me for that. Right. It's it's amazing. Um, when you get connected with people, they they are invested in, yeah. you, you know, you making it through and that you having a positive story about that place. Yeah. And that they are connected to that too. And they and build how, their own credibility off that. True. And then how we can give back is do a review on that place. Yes. And review it in all of the places that you can. Go on to iOverlander, review it on iOverlander. Go on to, you know, Google Maps, drop a pin, and oftentimes those businesses will already be in there and give a review. If you've had a positive experience, take the time to give back to that um, small locally owned operation that's really made a difference for you. They do. And then people even show up and do different and interesting things. Like if they know that you're leaving and that you're going to be driving through a place that they know doesn't have much for restaurants, et cetera. I've had people actually show up with packages for me to take and drive with so that I had food for the next four (laughs) hours that I didn't pay extra for. And I offered funds for, but they said, no, 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 no. And these are places where people are living off less than $50 a year, you know? So the fact that they're gifting you what they have and they're making things for you, sending it off. This is, this is the best of humanity. And that can be hard for some of us that want to be giving to also allow ourselves to receive. Um, we can feel like, Oh, like, please don't do that. Or it makes me feel uncomfortable or whatever, but it actually actually takes away that joy for them. It does. It does. And I think to give back, that's probably one of the second learnings, um, as well is leave your, you know, stereotypes behind because people will surprise you and that we can't possibly construct all the, <laughs> the, yeah. the prejudices or stereotypes that we could have in a place without knowing fully what it's like to walk in the paths of that place. So, um, it's important to stay open when you're traveling and that's how you can find a way to participate, not just give back, but participate. Um, Giving back sometimes carries the connotation that you are there to provide, but we have to remember too that we're part of every community that we come into, yeah. and that when we when we're there with anyone, you know, we don't we don't have to just give back. We can just be a part of their community because what I found is that people were always giving far more to me than I realized, and uh, or. I thought I was going to these places and I would be able to provide so much. And then I realized when I left that I left with a very different sense of life, myself, um, being in the moment, um, learning what life without connection to monetization might be like when people's currency is different and that um, self-respect and 
their own, you know, it's just authentic. It's an authentic experience. And to see how happy they are most of the time. Yeah. I meet a lot of unhappy people with money. <laughs> yeah. And I have not, I have not actually met that many unhappy people without money. It's time, I think. So yeah, I exactly. think, well, they, yeah. they, they're able to prioritize other things like connection, right. human connection and fun and play yes. and, you know, splashing in the lake or whatever. So as opposed to like, I didn't get the exact, you know, version of toy that I wanted this year. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think it's really important to remember that, that simplicity rules the day at the end of the day for, I think for happiness. It really can. So what are some other ways that you would recommend that Overlander, what organizations have you found that you have trust in mm. that people can, can give to, or they can volunteer their time? Uh, what are some suggestions that you have in general? Oh, so many. Um, I think WorkAway is an amazing organization for people to connect to, to volunteer, to find, to be connected to communities where they can go and, and travel, but also help. Um, they, that organization connects to so many people around the world that it's kind of trusted through a platform and you can, you know, it's, it's, uh, easier to connect with people and validate the, you know, the, the end point. So sure. that's, that's an organization I would definitely and work with. It's called with. Work Away? Work Away. Okay. Mm -hmm. And workaway.info. Okay, cool. Yeah. Is there any other ones that come to mind that you've found are pretty I pretty good? The organization of care is to me one of the top organizations partnering with global and governmental organizations around the world because they have leaders in the local communities who participate. And so you can connect with care organization leaders in the places that you're going to and then find out if there's different types of projects that you can participate with or engage with you and, go. um, you know, see how you can, how you can become part of what they're, what they're trying to do in that place. Well, and that's a great place to start. If you reached out and then you were able to talk with that local leader and then you ask the question of what it is, what is it that you need? Yeah. I've always been surprised what they say <laughs> yes. because I remember trying to help a, um, a school in Mulahe in, in Baja. And I thought that they would want paper or pens, you know, like this tradition, like, like again, my total ignorance on the subject. And they're like, no, 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 we have plenty, we have plenty of like pens and papers and stuff, which I'm so glad they said, they yeah. like, uh, they said, we need breakfast. For these kids we need food for them for breakfast like they they were set on lunch and dinner but they did not have anywhere near enough breakfast and i'm like <laughs> well help me understand what that looks like what what is the best because i'm thinking maybe they want eggs or maybe they want and they're like no no no, we don't want anything that spoils because we don't know how much food we're going to get and when mm. so they said bring things that keep on the shelf and don't need re and then don't require refrigeration. And I was like, oh wow, lesson number two. Yes. And so you show up with a bunch of cereal, <laughs> and it totally works. Yeah, and in some cases, rice. Like a lot yeah. of people like rice for breakfast. So you'll see that globally too for kids around the world. But um, yeah, different different ways to bring them to school so that they are fed, and they have a reason to go. Um, I was trying to think of where I was in the world, where. Um, I think it was in Nepal, actually, where I, I ran into a couple of dentists, <laughs> and they actually thought that they were going to kind of arrive and distribute toothbrushes and toothpaste samples and things. And when they got there, they realized that there were people with really significant challenges that mm. actually needed surgery. And so they committed to set up a um, kind of a, a clinic. And... Um, 
eventually we worked together to talk about how they could set up a virtual clinic so that they could kind of guide people to teach people about uh, dental hygiene from a distance and that it was more the knowledge that people needed um, and how to, to treat different situations and then when to triage what, you know, what needed to be prioritized at a different level to go to a hospital um, and how they could create community leaders who would know kind of the basics and then, and then expand from there and then be able to communicate with them um, just through you know, cell phone texting where they would be able to say, hey, you know, we've got this person coming in for this and then they, the dentist would communicate back. So it's amazing to see what people can create just from their own skills and knowledge. Uh, and you, can, you take that with you wherever you go. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for those insights, Melanie. I appreciate that. Uh, what what's one of the the philanthropic programs that you were involved with that you were you're most proud of that you'd like oh, to wow. share? Um, so, a few years ago, I started a nonprofit called Terabyte, and because one of the things that I saw when I was traveling is that different humanitarian and you know small nonprofit groups really didn't have a lot of money for technologies, and they didn't put it than their budgets, or if they did, they couldn't get the grants to fund short-term use of those types of items. So um, I bought radios with the help of other people um, and Wi-Fi hotspots and cell phones and iPads that could be used in different situations over and over again, sort of like a rental or term limit um, where people could apply and then use them and then they would go on to the next group. So. I wanted to do that because I wanted my son, who's 12, to get a sense of travel from a different perspective, where we would go in and we would participate with people based on the types of things that were happening in that community. And one of the things that we were able to participate with was um, some work with the attempt to save the vaquita in the Sea of Cortez. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And so we... Uh, my son reprogrammed radios and set them up. We set them up on boats and created line of sight communications and um, in, uh, in encrypted radios to assist the, um, the biologists with the attempt at moving the vaquita once located into a sanctuary. Yeah. And can, can, you share, can you share with what a vaquita is? Just oh, yes, For those sure. who may not know. It means little cow in Spanish, but it's a very cute little... Um, cousin of a dolphin or cousin of a whale really and it's a um it's a it looks like a goth dolphin it has very it, yeah, very white pink white whitish pink i think if yeah, i remember correctly they uh they're these ones are actually gray unlike the river oh. dolphins in uh, china and they they are gray and they have like black eyeshadow sort of above their eyes <laughs> and actually they hadn't had any pictures of any um since 1955 alive uh, until about four years ago so they've been uh, working with the group but the, now there are fewer than 15 left in the world uh, and there are about 90 biologists globally who came to try to participate in this rescue event along with the Mexican Navy, the U.S. Navy, uh, Coast Guard, to try to save the, um, the, uh, the vaquita. And, um, you know, there are many learnings from that. But um, while the effort itself, you know, was unsuccessful because they couldn't relocate the remaining uh, vaquita to some extent, the um, 
the opportunity to to be there and to have all of these people from Sea Shepherd or to, you know all different organizations from conservative to military to nonprofit to biologists and marine life advocates to come together to come work on a solution really yeah. paved the way for other scalable efforts around the world that they're still working on. In fact, they're now same groups working with the river dolphin, uh, endangered species work. So, so there's so many things that you could participate with, but we took those radios and then we used them again during the pandemic and donated them to the, the Navajo nation and then to the, to the Hopi, uh, emergency response organization. So they were used for uh, triage and, um, line of sight communications on the nation, both nations where, the Navajo and Hopi hadn't traditionally worked together in emergency situations. That was such an amazing project. Yeah. And I remember, it was actually one of the times we were able to reconnect through the years where you said, Scott, do you have any extra radios? And I'm like, (laughs) you know, Midland, Midland had just sent us a bunch of radios and I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) And those walkie talkies were, you know, right there helping to save people's lives. And so, you know, they just needed some um, additional support and resources. And so, so I can't think of any individual uh, one that I'm most proud yeah, but those of. are amazing though. both <laughs> of those are incredible and and just what you were doing during the pandemic on the Navajo Nation where you know a, a family member would be in the hospital yeah. maybe in their last moments and they were able to communicate with their family using the technologies that you put in place and yeah. an iPad that they were able to hold in their hand to have a video conference with their family uh, maybe one last time. So that was really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, you know, when we first went to the Navajo Nation, I had two interns with me that were actually it was my neighbor and her boyfriend, and they're they're now married um, and just graduated from NAU. But they had that idea. They said, "Well, what if when we went to the hospital?" They said, "Well, you know, we've got people who don't have cell phones. Their, their cell phones are with their families. It's you know multi generational and." And um, you know, we can't, like, people are without a way to communicate. And that was their idea to create that solution. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was such a challenging time. There were so many things to try to figure out. Mm-hmm. And then also not introducing any risk to the community by even going in there. So I remember you happened to be really on top of your, <laughs> all your tests and everything else like that to make sure that you were... You were safe going into yes, those regions. Yes, so. I just remember um, the woman who's the assistant attorney general just looking at me when I came in. She said, what are you doing here? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I said, well, I thought that people might need some help. Yeah. And here I am. And she said, you're crazy. I said, I am. Yeah, that was awesome. But now a lot of those radios are actually in uh, Poland and being used on... Um, and the two of the Wi-Fi hotspots have been shipped to Poland to be able to be used by a couple of um, rangers, former forest rangers who are now taking those radios, using them as they cross over the border into Ukraine to deliver medics supplies. Um, and so, you know, these these devices now have kind of a life where they're like there's they're traveling and doing different things so they they have a longer life than Mm -hmm. they were originally purchased for so those types of things it's just that I had some knowledge of and background in technology so I was able to think about how people could use those types of devices in different situations and then we've been able to redeploy them and through that whole experience my son and I have traveled all around the world to help 
participate. And what an incredible in thing for him to see. <laughs> Not only see his mom doing it, so the modeling that you're doing for your son, but for him then to participate, it gives him so much confidence. You yes. know, it's such an important time of life. Um, so speaking of technology, I'd like to pivot the conversation mm -hmm. a little bit towards something that you're actively involved with on a regular basis, which is cybersecurity. Um, you know, we're, this, this podcast is, is so much about the, the wonderful things of seeing the world, but there's also some practical considerations that we can do. So what recommendations do you have for travelers around cybersecurity uh, to be like, apps on their phone, the types of devices that they use, the ways that they communicate uh, that can keep them a little bit more safe while they're traveling. Oh man, uh, where to start, where to start, where to start. <laughs> um, so I think recently CISA, which is uh, the U.S. Organization for Homeland Security around cybersecurity, they released a, a, travel, a traveler's document where they make some recommendations and I would absolutely suggest that those uh, and is that S-E-S-A? C-I-S-A? C-I-S-A. CISA and we'll put that in the show notes. Oh great, yeah. It, it, I'll, I'll provide the link but it's a I find it to be the most well-established set of lists for travelers traveling globally as well as in the U.S. So that's um, it's kind of a standard list of things. But honestly, cybersecurity starts with practicality just in how you manage your device hygiene back at home. Yeah. So if you change your passwords regularly and use uh, significant, more challenging passwords <laughs> instead of things that can be easily related to your life, that's that's going to help you wherever you travel to. Yeah. Um, and then following you mean not don't use your birthday and middle name right or your dog's name <laughs> or your dog's name yeah. or like the like, name the type of car you drive right <laughs> or, or one two three four five <laughs> land cruiser 80 is your password yeah. yeah or you know right on the back of your phone there's a laminated um you know piece of paper that is has all your taped passwords. on with all sure. your passwords yeah seen that before too um but there's you know and i work I work at a different level of cybersecurity, not, not so much the personal level, but at the policy level and the research level with um, more nation state uh, and enterprise and cloud uh, impact and impact to GDP for nations. But, but it all starts in one place, which is that we all have to be aware that this is the Wild West in the world time yeah. as far as technology and that people all around the world are thinking about the best possible ways that they could utilize um, strategies to target your device or a, a larger group of devices or a larger system of banks that connect to your devices. So these things are, they seem so overwhelming to most people. But the core is, you know, when you travel, are you using a VPN system? Are you... Um, also checking to make sure that you are not linking or your phone has the Bluetooth off or you're not linking to different systems that can pull information or data from your device. And so um, one of my former colleagues, Michelle Dennity and Michelle Finnegan, they had created a whole system of practical awareness on data protection and privacy and privacy as we go around the world is really a human right. And you can protect your own human right and you can also protect the rights of people in a community when you're traveling by keeping your device security 
maintained and protected. So, you know, with data being the new currency, you have to think about how you store or where your data on your phone or your laptop or iPad or whatever you're taking with you goes. Um, and that's, um, that's pretty critical these days. Yeah. And it's such an interesting challenge because there are, there are levels of security that I have found are actually quite difficult while traveling. So for example, if if you're if you, logging into an application requires a text to your phone, there are times that you cannot get that text. Like maybe I'm connected by Starlink, and maybe it work comes through <laughs> as an MMS, or maybe it comes through as an SMS, or maybe it doesn't come through at all. Whereas if you use an authenticator application, that does work. So doing a little bit of research around that, but certainly having two levels of security, not only a password, but some other secondary form of authentication, whether it be an authentication um, app or it be, um, you know, a text to your phone, some way of getting an extra layer in there. Yeah. And you need multiple messaging systems as well so that you can make sure that if, if you're using cell, over that system, if you're using, um, if you can connect to a Wi-Fi system that's strong enough that you can use those systems. But yeah. key in any situation of travel is using an end-to-end encrypted messaging system. And what are some of the end-to-end messaging systems that you like? I love Signal. Yeah, and it's a not-for-profit, isn't it? It is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so those that are listening, there is the Signal app, which is a great way for you to communicate back with your coworkers, to communicate with family. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of penetration of that app into the global community. So you will find that most people will use WhatsApp, and WhatsApp at least is better than um, most, like email or, or <laughs> standard text message. It is right. better. It does have a degree of encryption, but it's being operated by a for-profit profit organization. So everything that you type in there is being used in some way to market or sell to you. Anything else you'd like to add on that, on the WhatsApp? What's your thoughts around WhatsApp? Oh, I think it, I think that WhatsApp has come a long way as well as being, you know, able to, you know, the location services and, and, um, yeah, I use that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I do. That's really valuable. Especially when you're traveling internationally, you have you have somebody, another overlander you're trying to connect with. You can share your location for eight hours or four hours or whatever, 15 minutes if you want, just to be able to connect in with somebody. And having that feature available for solo travel, especially, you know, you meet people as you go and it's important to try to stay in contact if you can yeah. so that someone knows where your last position was and where you're going. Um, at I, I do wish it had more of an indefinite one, like on the iPhone, like the, like, so for example, people in my family I have where they can always check my location using, you know, the, the iPhone uh, services, but it would be nice if WhatsApp had, I think the longest is 15 hours or eight hours, maybe. It's a, it's a, it's not an unlimited, it's not an unlimited amount of time. It would be nice if people that you trust could track you for longer. Well, either way, if you're using your cell, the last time that you connected to a, a local tower will be your last known location. So that's also helpful is if you can, um, if you've got your cell services turned off and you know that there are no cell towers nearby, then that's one thing. But if you are in a place right before your battery goes out, try to connect to a local cell tower, turn on your cellular connection so that you can 
you could have a last known location as well. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. What are some other apps that you found that you like while traveling? I, um, I use a, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but I use a hidden camera app. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I check, I scan the network to see. You did tell me about that. Yes. One. I, remember. <laughs> I remember I was in my room in, in Dubai and I'm like <laughs> trying, trying to, and, and it didn't find anything, but it, it looks for Bluetooth devices. Right. And right. it, and I think you use your camera to kind of scan the room. So it's probably, it's probably a, a cyber sleuthing device in and of itself. Who knows? <laughs> but, I'll give, I'll send the two that I like yeah. to use um, for different reasons. But uh, yeah, those are useful, especially for solo travelers. Um, there's so many times that your whereabouts can be used kind of, you know, for theft in your hotel room or yeah. or even just awareness of when people can come and find you to offer you op options for tours and things like that you'd sure. be surprised what things were used for um but i always look for for things like that um and uh just try to identify what systems are trying to connect with mine yeah no that makes a lot of sense those are all great pieces of advice um and then yeah, so we've talked through some of the cyber probably enough around the cybersecurity, <laughs> unless unless there's anything else that you really, really feel is important. Those are all really good, actionable pieces of advice. So change your passwords off, often, mm -hmm. use two-factor authentication, yes. um, use messaging services that have encryption. Um, those are all really good have ideas. multi-layered messaging systems so that if you can't connect one way, you can connect another. Yeah. And that there's a, those one of those systems connects to a last known location. Yeah, and that's probably where we have to think beyond just the single device that we have, which is the cell phone, which all of those are quite desirable in other countries. So someone's stealing your phone. Mm -hmm. So having, for example, an inReach, a Garmin inReach with you that can communicate by satellite. That way you have your primary method of communication is your cell phone. A secondary form of communication can be an inReach or in, on top of that, right. uh, small radios. Um, and then maybe you have a, th a third or a, an emergency form of communication which yeah. can be an additional satellite communicator of some sort, satellite phone, for example. Yeah, I think satellite phones and satellite communicators are really necessary if you're going on a rural solo trip Yeah. as well. Yeah, having those multiple layers of, yes. if you have a problem, being able to communicate. And yeah, testing sure. them out prior. I've seen a lot of friends who get to a place because they haven't had a lot of time prior. Yeah. They test it in the place and they can't you know, figure out the functionality and their those systems that they brought are useless yep. for them and they depended on them for stability, security, and comfort. And uh, so test everything before you take it out into the, into the field. Yeah. Like I tried to activate my Spotify <laughs> account in Africa. It doesn't work. No, Can't do it. You got to have it activated while you're in your home country, yes. wherever your billing address is. <laughs> So like I didn't get my Spotify for all of Africa, but that's like an, that's an example of like check your inReach before you go. Yeah. Check all of that stuff. And the laws for different apps and data on different apps are, are different in different yeah, countries. Sure. So you have, you know, Europe, which has GDPR, which is protection of data and people. So, so the, the rules are different in different places. So you just have to kind of be able to navigate through those things. So um, what are your top, 
like from an overland perspective or just from a travel perspective, what are your top like two, three, four, five pieces of kit that that, <laughs> Mel, that Melanie loves? You have cool stuff, <laughs> like you know, like you to- you totally get it. Like, I think like, I'm so minimalist, really. But that's good though. It's, yeah. Well, you you like I, I you drive a Toyota four wheel drive and you drive <laughs> yeah. you drive things that are like totally the right solution. But what are some other things that you found that you like? Um. It, it's kind of hard to travel with it sometimes, but um, because you can't if you can't find the propane. But my very very favorite thing to travel with and have with me is a jet boil. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and an AeroPress coffee maker. Those are awesome. So, um, and I have a hand grinder. Uh, so coffee is to me one of the most valuable things when I'm traveling. We're drinking coffee now. <laughs> We're not going to yeah. disclose what may be in the coffee, but <laughs> we are drinking coffee right now. Um, so. Funny enough, that's like part of my minimalist kit, but I try to pack really light because I need to be able to move fast. I have an Osprey bag that I love that can change from being a roller bag to a to a backpack. So oh, that's I can, clever. I can move fast. I can put it on my back. Um, I find that being hands-free as much as possible is pretty important when I'm traveling. Um, I hate carrying bags and having lots of stuff around. Um, I think that you know, some of that's great. Anytime, anytime I check a bag, I feel like I've let myself <laughs> and the rest of the travel community down. <laughs> so. I used to give myself points on how many, like I would lower my point level on my, my travel preparedness if I had to take more than one bag. Yeah, um, so true. And I roll things up really tight and I pack things very, very tightly um, but to, so that I can take what I want. But um, The Osprey bag is cool. Maybe we can get a link to that. That sounds very clever. It is smart. They come in a couple different sizes. Um, I'd love to work with Osprey though to like expand the size of the handle so you can put a backpack on it if you needed to. Oh sure. But um, or or a camera bag actually would be really great because everything just kind of falls off. But it is it is it is really useful to being able to get in and out of cars fast, uh, in and out of places to stay Mm -hmm. Um, when you need to move. It moves with you. So yeah. that's, that's one of my favorite pieces. I also have a, um, a solar charger that I just got for Christmas that is unbelievable. I can charge my devices so quickly with that, and I'll, I'll provide the link for that one too. So it has a solar panel plus a battery in it? It has a, yes, it has a battery in that's it. Perfect. And then it also connects, um, it has uh, carabiners that can connect to the back of your backpack so you can, or the front of, you know, if you can lay it flat in the car. Sure. And I had to test this out when I was in Europe last week, and it charged my phone as fast as my home charger. I could not believe the capability on this thing. So, oh, that's awesome. And it's used by mountaineers around the world. So I thought, well, you know, this might be the right solution. And it was a great gift. Yeah. So Do you remember the brand? I'm trying to remember. It doesn't have, it's not branded on the oh, outside, God. which well, is that's really funny. More and cool. so I don't remember what the name of the brand was. You're so, you're so clandestine, Melanie. <laughs> oh, I know. So, um, Pivoting away from how clandestine Melanie is, <laughs> let's let's talk about your. We started the conversation talking about books, um, so I think we should mm. have this be one of the last questions that we ask. So, oh. what are what are some of your favorite books um, that you have read? And they can be about travel. They can be about anything that you want. But favorite books that I have read. Um, one of my, well, I I don't know. I can give you like forty. Um, one of my favorite books to read, and oddly I reread it and reread it, um, 
is braiding sweetgrass. Mm. And I think it's like Robin Kimmler. Yeah. And it's a book that you can pick up and it pulls you right into the moment to remind you that wherever you are, you can just be. You can watch the snow falling. You can you know, understand the language of a place. And um, my favorite chapter is about language. Um, and she goes into um, the Mononymy people and their language and how there is a, ter- a term for the growth of a mushroom overnight. Mm. And but there are so many more terms in biology for things happening. And so it's just fascinating. And, and it's it's great to think. I love that book when I'm traveling mm. as well. That's a great one. Um, and then also, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast. You can. You can say whatever you okay. want. Um, that is the, uh, what is it? The, the, the subtle art? Yes, the subtle art. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, you could bleep that yeah, out. Yeah, the subtle art of not giving a bleep. Yes, and <laughs> yeah. so it's it's a that's a great book, and it always reminds me of like how you need to set your standards for your own life. And I think one of the things that travelers experience too is that people are always saying to me like, why are you, why do you need to do that? Like, why are you taking those risks? Like, don't you, you know, as a mother, as a you know, professional in the cybersecurity industry, like, why why do you need to do these things? Like, why do you need to uh, travel or whatever, but you have to learn to set your own metrics for your life and for what you value. And sometimes it's not on what other people think of you. It's on what you think of yourself and what your goals are. And I think that that book is, is helpful in making you rethink what your own metrics are. Well, and it's, you're living your own life and you're the only one that can live that. And our lives are so impossibly short. Um, you know, one of the the books that I've read recently that I really enjoyed was called 4,000 weeks. And there's a whole chapter on cosmic insignificance (laughs) and it's a perspective of in the grand scheme of the cosmos, my life is not even a blip. It is one millionth of a blip. And it's important to remember how short it is the time that we have and that we do need to live the life that we feel is the most rewarding for us and our family, for the people that we care about. And certainly to stop focusing very much, if at all, on what some third party thinks of you or what some stranger thinks of you. Yeah, because ultimately, if it doesn't matter to you, then it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes the things that matter to us also matter to our family and to our close friends. And, you know, there um, there is a responsibility that we have to the people that, that count on us for sure. Uh, but that includes us. Like right. we, we also have some agency in how we live our life. And that's part of our value system too already. It's just, um, yeah, it's like, what do you want to get out of the limited time that you have? Yeah. Very, very, very limited time. Yeah. So, um, what are you excited about next for your <laughs> travels? What's, what's coming up that you oh. are thrilled about? Okay. So, I, so last year I read, here's my third book. Um, I read the Odyssey, um, Mm. you know, one of two of Homer's epic poems. Um, and that, that book, that poem is amazing because it takes you through looking at life as a personal journey and facing, facing your demons, facing yourself, um, and establishing an idea of what is home. 
to you yeah. and what you're trying to get to. Like, what are what are your goals? And so I think the Odyssey still has so much relevance today. And what's interesting is there are some places in the Odyssey that you can actually still go and visit, but there are also some places that are unknown. So the fact that there are some places that are unknown and that people are studying where those locations might be is interesting to me and a bit of a challenge. And so for my next life and in, you know, some vision or fantasy of retirement at some point, I would love to learn to sail and then go and um, explore the seas and oceans because that's kind of an unexplored territory for me yet. And um, actually go to on a path of the Odyssey and thinking about that journey of self-discovery. Oh, that's wonderful. And <laughs> and it's one of the oldest stories that we have as humans yes. that's been passed down uh, probably fairly close to its original original form because storytelling is can be so powerful. But I love the fact that it's the hero's journey. Yeah. In the modern age, we have become infatuated with the revenge story. And I think uh, particularly for men, it's important to live the hero's journey and not the revenge film. Uh, you don't want to be um, Liam Neeson with a particular set of skills and you spend the rest of your life finding a way to revenge all of the wrongs that were done to you. Yeah. It's really like you said about um, that journey of discovery, about growing as becoming stronger, becoming more thoughtful, giving back, um, going on to that grand adventure of life and coming back in a way that makes you um, more humble, more giving, more thoughtful. Um, and a better leader when you come to the end of it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great one. And isolating what matters to you. Yeah. And uh, so hopefully, you know, that will be that will be coming. I did a little reconnaissance on that this past summer and Fun. took my son and his best friend to uh, Malta and Italy and Greece <laughs> to uh, see some things. And uh, their awesome. perception was quite different than, than mine, but they uh, they are all excited now because they know a lot more about Greek mythology than they ever knew. Yeah, that's awesome. So how can people find out a little bit more about Terabyte Um, and anything else that you'd like to share um, that how people can give back? We'll put those organizations that you mentioned in the show notes, of course. Uh, But what are some other ways that people can can connect in with the good work that you're doing? Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's a... So terabyte has become something, you know, from from just you know um, some friends and myself and my son to becoming a larger network of people who want to participate, and people who want to volunteer to participate to do different things. So um, it would be wonderful to create a community globally of folks who want to utilize their skills in the communities that they're traveling with and to, and. Um, there's a way to enter that right onto the terabyte.org site. And uh, also, if you have any devices uh, that you'd like to donate, we'll always take those. We have interns who volunteer to fix them, wipe them, and then repurpose them. And we, um, we have n- newly requests coming in from around the world of people who have heard from different folks that, that we have them av- available. And there's some larger enterprise-level organizations that supply technology through grants, but ours is a different system where you can we can provide it for like two weeks, three weeks, four months, six months, um, and people can give them back. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think that that's you know useful. So people have devices, so iPads, phones. Um, we can use them in different different ways, but we really need radios, Wi-Fi access points, just you know anything that you're thinking about throwing away, you can donate. And that is T E R R A B Y T E. Yes. Did I get that right? Okay. Yes. So terabyte.org. Melanie, it has been such a joy <laughs> to be your friend for so long and. Yes. It is such a, a wonderful opportunity to have you on the podcast. I'm sure this will be the first of many conversations <laughs> as you continue on your odyssey of thank discovery you. in this life. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the podcast, Melanie. Oh, thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Yeah, you're so welcome. And we thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.